Here in the UK, the peak is looming and the death toll is mounting. Are our hospitals prepared? If the projections that we're seeing are realised, we will completely outstrip the supply, not just of ventilators, but other pieces of equipment and also essentials such as oxygen. What's it like being an ICU doctor on the front line of COVID-19? I am scared that young, fit and healthy nurses who are about my age are sometimes sadly killed with this disease, which is terrifying. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, intensive care, a doctor's story. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I know you're incredibly busy at the moment and uh, you're dealing with some really difficult things at, at work and you've got lots of difficult concerns outside of work too. Just in the middle of all of that, how are you? Thank you for asking, actually. Um, and weirdly, that, that might set me off uh, being a bit emotional, but I think that's just how I am at the moment. Lucy Cocker is a 31-year-old ICU doctor working in the East Midlands and she's been dealing with the coronavirus outbreak since it began. Most of the time I am doing well, as long as I'm keeping my mind busy and doing things. But I am finding that, as someone that very, very rarely cries, I am quite emotional for small things. My sleep isn't as good as it, as it could be, and you know, all sort of probably predictable effects of working through and living through something like this. As with all of our NHS staff, Lucy is working harder than ever. When we caught up with her over the phone, she was between two long night shifts. It's not a situation I hoped I'd find myself in ever, and it's definitely not how I saw myself living my life this summer. But I am sure I will come out the other end of it a more experienced, if not always a good experienced doctor. When did you realise that coronavirus was here and that your normal working life was about to change completely? 
So I think about the start of March when we were getting a lot more figures from Italy and we started having planning meetings about what we would need to do as a department. And at that point, it felt very much like we were planning just in case rather than because we knew it was coming. But as cases started coming in through London, we realized that it was spreading through the community now. We weren't planning for a possible scenario. We were planning for a very, very real scenario. And you, you talked about how watching the figures mounting in London. What's it like where you are now? So we are seeing uh, a lot of cases coming through, both people who come to the emergency department and are suffering from, from some of the symptoms of coronavirus but are well enough to go home. Um, some patients who are requiring a little bit of medical treatment, whether that's a little bit of oxygen um, or some antibiotics. But then also we are getting a lot of people who are coming in very sick or coming in and quickly deteriorate into being very, very sick. Each time I go into work, there's something that's changed that's different. It started off with how we were partitioning the units to separate off the patients who are suspected for coronavirus. We have areas set up as airlocks between the coronavirus areas and the non-coronavirus areas to prevent the transmission as much as possible. Rotors have changed, our staffing's changed, and we've also changed our protocols as well, particularly for when we're doing things like intubating patients or anything that's classed as an aerosol-generating procedure so that we are minimising the risk to staff of contracting the disease. And when they do come in, when they come into ICU, so it's already very serious, what kind of care can you offer? What, what can you do for them? So if patients are coming to intensive care, it's normally because they are needing more oxygen than can be supplied on a ward. So in intensive care, we have the ability to either give a face mask of oxygen, which we call non-invasive ventilation, that adds some pressure. Those patients are still awake, but that extra pressure enables the machine to take on some of the work of the lungs, particularly for those who are tired. Um, And for those that are severely stricken, we will sedate them and intubate them in a way that you would if you had a general anaesthetic. And then we can allow the ventilator either to completely take over and do all of the work or in the same way provide added pressures and oxygen whilst the patient continues to breathe for themselves. We've been hearing that sometimes turning people on their front is helping. Are you having to do that much? Some patients are being turned onto their front, yes. Um, And that helps because it relieves some of the pressure on the lungs. When you're lying on your back, on top of your lungs, you have your heart, possibly part of your stomach. Um, For women, the breast. And for also anyone that's larger, you have a lot of the chest tissue, which adds pressure on top of your lungs and means that your lungs have to work harder. If you turn someone over so they're lying on their front, there is a lot less pressure on the lungs so they can inflate better um, and that allows us to give people a better oxygenation. You said there are still patients in ICU with other illnesses. How do you deal with that? How do you keep them completely separated to make sure they don't get coronavirus on top of whatever else they're, they're already suffering from? Absolutely. And it's a really key concern, not just for our intensive care patients, but for patients across the whole hospital. Where I work, we have created a completely separate area um, for patients who are not suspected to have coronavirus. So it is separated by 
zones where people will take off all of their personal protective equipment. We have been changing our scrubs underneath as well once we come out of what we're calling the, the hot zone where, where we have the, the coronavirus patients. So we're taking off all our layers of masks, gowns, gloves, hair coverings, and also all the clothes we've worn underneath and putting everything on afresh so that we are completely minimizing as much as possible the risk to those patients. And then we as staff are also wearing face masks when we go to visit the patients who are not suspected of a coronavirus. So again, we're protecting them in case we ourselves are asymptomatic carriers. Is that a real worry? I do worry that I could be an asymptomatic carrier and, and, and have an effect either, either on my patients or on other members of staff. We know that there will be a lot of people in the community that have been, and that's one of the things that spread it. And I would hate to think that I could unintentionally have that effect on someone. And it, it would just be great if we could develop some system for the antibody testing, because as a member of staff, if I could be tested and told whether I've had coronavirus or not, it means that I'm less of a risk to my patients, but also to people like my grandma, who is in her late 80s. Um, My father has asthma. There are people in my life who, who are not just people I wouldn't want to make ill, but who would be potentially at higher risk if they did contract it. And I, although it It's horrible to have to keep yourself away, particularly when family is something that you usually rely on for support and comfort. I mean, it sounds sounds terrifying. Are you scared going into work? I, yes, I I am scared that I'm going to either get get the disease myself or I'm going to go into work and I'm going to recognise a patient, either as a member of staff or, or someone I know from the community. That makes this really quite scary at times. A nurse in the West Midlands, and I know it's slightly further away, but a nurse in the West Midlands died recently. What sort of impact did that have on the area, on medics in the area? It's devastating to hear. And any of the deaths reported from coronavirus or from anything else are devastating. But it's particularly difficult seeing the deaths of young colleagues and colleagues in the area where we are. We have adequate personal protective equipment, but I know from drawing to colleagues across the country that many people don't. And I know seeing young, fit and healthy nurses who are about my age, who have been struck down and sadly killed by this is is terrifying. And I know it scares my family even more. Um, my parents, whenever I speak to them, my mum will, will, will sign off at the end of a, a message or a call just saying, please, please, just wear PPE, all the PPE you can. Um, my grandma will tells me that you know, she's not particularly scared for herself. I've been you know, very stringent on ensuring that she will stay inside and self-isolate, but she knows that I can't, and it worries her that the risks that I'm exposed to. How much does it play on your mind? Yes, I had some conversations with, with friends again in their early 30s, um, and we started talking about whether we had wills in place. Last night, I went through the process of filling out a death-in-service benefit form so that if I do pass away as as a result of this on the job, then the NHS pension service know who to pay out a lump sum to. And I filled out a a will form, and that was... It felt very administrative until I got sections where it was asking me if I wanted to leave specific items to specific people. And did I want to leave a message alongside that? And I found that really difficult. I'm not surprised. It's not something I thought I'd have to think about at 
this age and in the career I do. I, I haven't gone into you know the military. I'm not in a career that I thought would be particularly dangerous. I'm normally fit and well, apart from a slightly dodgy knee. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's a, a very real reality um, and something that unfortunately we have to be prepared for. And I hope to goodness that now I'm, I'm prepared for it and I've I've done all the the paperwork in the background that it's never needed, but it it needed to be done just in case. That must have been incredibly hard, sitting down and writing out writing out messages to your family. Yeah, that that was the most difficult part. Um, just think, just writing out messages and thinking about them, because the only time they'll probably see it is if something happens, and that just a, just a thought behind that and thinking about how they would react to to seeing that and to reading those is horrible. Shouldn't really be a part of the job. Well, it's not a part of the job that I expected. Um, And it's... No, it's not a part of the job that I particularly wanted either. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. Describe an average shift now. How different is it to normal? There are, if on a day shift, we start at 7.45 in the morning for our handovers. Um, there are obviously a lot more patients now on handovers than previously. And then we have to decide which teams are going to go and see the patients in the coronavirus area of intensive care and who will have a look and go and see the patients in the area where we're not suspecting coronavirus. I know where I'm working that we are as protected probably as we can be. We have people who are assigned as buddies, for example, to help us put on all of our protective equipment to check that it's on properly and also the same on the way out. Um, 
I think what I do worry about is is the ability for other people to come and help if a patient is sick on the coronavirus side. Because normally if a patient were to become very, very sick and we needed to help from our colleagues who were elsewhere in the department, you would only just need to shout and, and you would have you know a vast number of people by your side in a matter of seconds. Whereas you, you would only have the help of the people who are already inside and in their protective equipment currently. And as someone who's still relatively quite a junior doctor for me, I think that is a concern because knowing that the level of support that's normally there can't come as quickly is something that does worry me. How long do you have to wear the PPE for? What, what does that feel like? So we're trying not to wear it for more than four or five hours at a time. And that's so that we aren't getting too uncomfortable underneath it, particularly around the face masks, because when they start to get more uncomfortable, the almost subconscious reaction is to try and make yourself more comfortable. But if we are touching our faces, touching the mask, we're likely to break the seal and make it less protective. You also can't drink while you're wearing it because you would have to move the mask off your face and go to the toilet as well. So, you know, as little time as possible without everyone having to keep changing all the time, but also that people have enough of a time to have a break, eat and drink um, and make sure that we're looking after ourselves so we're not getting dehydrated and ill underneath it because it is very hot and you know when it's stressful enough anyway you you find yourself being sweaty and warmer and underneath all of this kit that's only exacerbated. And what's it like walking through ICU now going through the the coronavirus area? So getting into our intensive care department we enter in a completely different area now and then initially on first glance it might not look so different from the normal department when you're looking around we, we still have you know, the patients in the areas that we would have patients previously. We are still using the same kit that we would use before. So our ventilators, kidney filtration machines if they're needed, and all of our monitoring systems as well. And do you have enough ventilators? Is that at all a worry now? It's definitely a worry. Um, looking at the projections that are shared by Chris Whitty on the number of cases we might expect. At the moment, we have plenty of kits for the patients that we have. But I think everyone around the country is concerned that if the predictions that we're seeing for number of cases and potential number of deaths are realised, that we will completely outstrip the supply, not just of ventilators, but potentially of other pieces of equipment and also essentials such as oxygen, as we've seen reported from some hospitals in London recently. The Midlands, where you are, is thought to be another hotspot and they are about to open another Nightingale Hospital, hopefully in the NEC in Birmingham. Will that help? I have mixed feelings about that, I think. It is great to see that we'll have more spaces for patients and we will have places to put those patients. What I worry about is where the staff will come from and how that will affect the departments that are already up and running in our NHS in the area. We've, for many, many years, we've talked about the staffing shortages in the NHS, not just doctors, but also our nurses too. And it's been talked about widely about how many more staff we need. And that's just for for the beds and the number of patients that we had pre-coronavirus. So opening up a new unit in, in the Midlands, whilst it gives us more spaces physically for patients, I do worry about where the staff will come to staff that and how that will affect the rotors of the department's that people are potentially going to be leaving to go and help staff the Nightingale and the effect that that's going to have on the, the system as a whole. And is that being talked about in your hospital? I mean, uh, uh, is there an idea that some of you will have to go over there? 
I've not heard anything about it so far. Um, from here, I know friends down in London where the Nightingale Hospital is now up and running. They all had sent emails round to junior doctors asking for volunteers. So on the basis that those people would have to get the permission from the trust that they work at in order to do that. I'm not sure what the success rate was of people volunteering and also their trust feeling that they had the capacity to let them go. But I would imagine that the trusts are already feeling the pressure quite a lot. Doctors in London have been saying that they're feeling overwhelmed now. What's it like where you are? It's starting to get overwhelming. I don't feel completely overwhelmed yet, but we have the sense that that is coming. And the last couple of weeks have been sort of preparing myself for the fact that it's going to get to scary and difficult points. And this will be almost undoubtedly the most trying part of my career and a part of our career that we're never going to forget and hopefully never going to have to repeat again. Normally as a doctor, you're not only dealing with your patients, but you're dealing with their families and explaining to them what's happening and keeping them in the loop. That must be so much harder with coronavirus where they can't, they can't come and visit. Absolutely. That is one aspect that has completely changed from intensive care. We are used to, although in smaller scales, dealing with very sick patients. We are unfortunately used to seeing some of our patients die. What we don't normally have to deal with is that complete separation of of the patient from their family and that separation from us from their family as well. It's normally a, a very holistic environment. It's a lot less personal. You can offer a lot less reassurance than you can with your physical presence as a doctor, even if it's just offering a tissue or or a hand on someone's arm when they're really upset. And it's obviously devastating for families that they can't come into the hospital, they can't physically see or touch their relatives, and they don't know when the next time they're going to be able to do that is. Have you had to have difficult conversations on the phone? I have had a couple of conversations with families where I've had to give them updates on, on where their relatives are and you know, a number of those are, are very sad. We have had a couple where those conversations have been the opposite way. We've actually been able to tell relatives that their family member is improving and we've had a couple of patients who have been on a ventilator and had their conditions improved and we've managed to take their sedation off and wake them up and take the tube out and have them breathing for themselves again and that is an absolutely amazing moment amidst everything else that's going on I think a lot of people are terrified that as soon as their family member goes into intensive care there is only one way out so to be able to tell people and and to have relatives know that their family member has come out the other side as some people will do is definitely rewarding There are moments of hope There are moments of hope, yes. Yeah, and those are also important for us to hold on to. Have the local community helped? The local community have been absolutely fantastic. Every time I drive into work, I think I see another couple of signs with rainbow pictures in people's windows. And that sort of message of support is really, really uplifting, particularly on the drive on the way into work. And of course, there are so many donations of food and supplies coming into our hospitals from things like a toothbrush and some shower gel if people want to freshen up when they come out of their PPE and also the the clapping that's been happening on Thursday evenings. I had completely forgotten it was going to happen last week 
And I walked out with my daughter, walked my dog after finishing a shift and suddenly found all the neighbours on my little dead end street standing on their driveways and clapping and, and some people with saucepans and wooden spoons as drums. And it was it was overwhelming to see. And uh, yes, a lot, all our neighbours know that, that I'm a doctor and they were so supportive and so kind. But it was also lovely to see that everyone was still there. Everyone was outside the houses. Everyone was still well. And I think it was a real sense of community that everyone sort of came together for. And I hadn't expected it to feel as as profound as it did. And that was that was wonderful. And I think that's great, not just for us as, as NHS staff and key workers, but for everyone in the country at the moment to be doing something together to feel they're part of something because I'm sure there are a lot of people who are very lonely and alone right now. I just hope that once the coronavirus pandemic is over, that that's not forgotten, but that there is a a deeper and more lasting understanding of the NHS and the work that we do. Good luck. Thank you for everything you're doing and Look after yourself. Thank you very much, yes, and you too. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and Lucy Cocker, a junior doctor working in intensive care. The producers today were Ben Mitchell and Asif Fuchs. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. And in these uncertain times, if you want more information about coronavirus... You can access expert analysis and all the latest developments with The Times' dedicated daily newsletter. You can sign up for free at thetimes.co.uk slash coronavirus. Have a good Easter. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling 
spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.